You're listening to a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. We're here today uh, talking to Professor Colin Robinson, one of the respiratory physicians at the Royal Children's Hospital and involved in managing our complex asthma patients. Colin, we are talking today about outpatient management of children and adolescents with asthma. I wonder if you want to start by reflecting on what we're actually talking about when we talk about asthma. Sure. Look, I, th I think asthma is a, rather than a disease process, is actually a symptom complex. And in the 80s, when asthma was really popularised, there was a pressure to think that it was all airway inflammation and remodelling and it was all the same condition, mainly driven by adult asthma. And what's important to realise is that in paediatrics, there are a number of different formats of uh, conditions that fit under the umbrella of that asthma symptom complex and need to be recognised and managed very differently. Can so, you give some examples of that? Well, I think uh, the most common pattern we see is viral-associated wheeze. So it fits under the umbrella of diagnosis of asthma, mainly because most of it result, result, responds to uh, inhaled bronchodilators. But it's very different to the uh, persistent asthma that creates remodelling and chronic obstructive airways disease in adult life. So I think as paediatricians, we're pretty comfortable sitting with the kid who responds to bronchodilators and steroids in the acute episode, and even those that then need an inhaled corticosteroid to manage any persistent symptoms. Um, but I guess when we have those children and we think they're on a reasonable dose of their inhaled corticosteroids and they're still having persistent symptoms, what are the kinds of things we need to think about? It would probably be the most common referral we get to respiratory clinic for young children with asthma. And <clears throat> um, I guess if you feel relatively confident that the diagnosis is correct, then the most important things to check are that the child actually has uh, an appropriate technique for uh, inhaling the relevant therapy, that they're actually given an appropriate delivery system and that they're actually taking it. And there are many reasons why they may not be taking it. It may be financial reasons, it may be belief structures. Um, and if all those things are, uh, if you're convinced that all those things are correct, then you should think of, do you have the right diagnosis? And probably the most common misdiagnosis, particularly in the preschool group, would be recurrent post-infective cough. It's a very common problem in preschool children. Cough is often promoted as a major symptom of asthma, and while it can be a major symptom of asthma, isolated cough in the absence of wheeze is rarely asthma. Recurrent post-infective cough is uh, where children who get a viral infection, instead of getting reactive lower airways disease resulting in wheezing, get hypersensitivity of their cough receptors in the proximal airways, which results in a really disturbing paroxysmal cough, similar to that of whooping cough, which lasts for seven to 10 days. It can be quite distressing. The paroxysms are often followed by um, vomiting, or, um, and it's much worse at night than during the day, much worse when exposed to cold air, and all those other things that uh, irritate cough receptors. Um, it's a kind of good news, bad news story, and the good news is it's just a transient increase in sensitivity of the cough receptors uh, and not associated with any intrapulmonary pathology. The bad news is we don't have 
too much in the way of therapy that modifies the course of that condition. But it's really important to recognise because often I see children who have current, recurrent post-infective cough who've been given all sorts of therapies and often if a little bit doesn't work then they're often given a whole lot more, uh, thinking that it's asthma and it's important to think of that uh, post-infective cough. The other is, um, in, is, is protracted bronchitis which has been popularised a bit in the last few years, although it's a concept we really became aware of back in the early 80s. And this is where children get a, uh, an infection which results in a moist cough and the moist cough just hangs around for a while. It responds to a um, short course of antibiotics but rapidly recurs on completion of the course of antibiotics and they have another course and it goes away and comes back again. In the old days we used to think that was chronic bronchitis and we do all sorts of investigations but we realised that a prolonged course of antibiotics um, seemed to clear it up and uh, completely and therefore didn't require any further investigation. So for those children uh, we often give them either two or four weeks of oral antibiotics, mostly augmented. Why? Because the organism you identify is mostly Haemophilus influenzae which is resistant to amoxicillin but often sensitive to augmentin. And only um, if their cough continues after that would we think about investigating for chronic bronchitis. The, the important differences are that for post-infective cough it's a dry cough as opposed to protracted bronchitis was a moist cough which is often worse on waking in the mornings. Mm, that's helpful. Is there a role for respiratory function tests in sorting any of this out? Well um, I guess the burden for most people in general practice and in fact for us is the respiratory symptoms in the preschool age range for which we have no useful tests of lung function. Really um, for the novice child uh, lung function becomes valuable from the age of seven and above. Occasionally you have a few wins in younger children but consistently seven and above will give you um, some information. It, lung function is important in understanding the diagnosis but again you need to consider the pattern of asthma so for a child who has intermittent asthma who gets occasional wheezing with infections two or three times a year will have normal lung function when you see them in the clinic. Um, I find it helpful in the child who has difficult asthma and you're not sure where you're going and you might uh, see a child who um, it's very helpful when your child is using a lot of Ventolin but they seem to you to be okay and you do look at their lung function. If it's abnormal then it tells you you've got quite severe asthma. On the flip side, if the lung function is perfectly normal then you wonder about what's triggering their use of Ventolin on such a frequent basis. Yeah, absolutely. Just to take another tact, um, as a clinician, I often reflect on the fact that I started practicing medicine one way, the way that I was taught, um, using a particular steroid such as fluticasone, sticking to that and just increasing doses of that. And while I'm aware that there's other options and things available to use, I guess I'm wondering when or if I should consider using them. Well, um Beta agonists and inhaled steroids were developed in the early 70s and while there have been uh, lots of modifications of those, really their functions are very difficult. Their effectiveness is much the same and their side effect profiles are much the same. It's, um, uh, so I don't think that 
there's any advantage in using one over another. What's important to understand is the relative strength of different steroids, um, and particularly uh, the uh, introduction of things like Brio, which has fluticasone fluorinate in it, which sounds like it's fluticasone propionate in flixotide, but it happens to be five times more potent than, than, than fluticasone propionate, and that's a trap for us all. Um, perhaps the one thing I've started using a lot is seclesonide uh, because it's a once a daily uh, preparation and that in, encourages adherence and I think I find that very useful for uh, children um, and who've got mild asthma who get by with low dose inhaled steroids once a day. That's handy. Um, so you mentioned Brio. In what kind of cohort of children do you think about using that? I think that should be restrained, restricted to those with very severe asthma. I really don't think it should be used in general practice. I think uh, the children that I've used Bria on have been very complex for all sorts of reasons. I use it infrequently, effectively, but in a very small group of children where you've excluded uh, a whole range of other conditions. And I wouldn't support its use in children in general practice because it is such a potent steroid. So if, to summarise that discussion a bit, most steroids are equivalent as long as we understand the relative dosing yeah. and advantages are really over the once a day dose versus twice a day dosing. Yeah, the other difference is the delivery system that's available to you. So um, most drugs are available in pressurised metadose inhalers, but the um, the dry powder inhalers, particularly the turbohaler, is an incredibly efficient device uh, and probably the most efficient of the dry powder delivery systems and is quite appealing, particularly to teenagers who prefer to use a dry powder device rather than uh, a metadose inhaler with a spacer. It's a good tip. What's the role of Singulair? Singulair uh, has a very limited role in my view. Um, it, uh, it, it, it has some effect in mild persistent asthma, um, although I, I don't find it uh, fantastically effective, I have to say. I think if you, uh, but it's worth a trial if you're worried about steroid side effects. However, um, if it doesn't work, don't persevere with it. And the other thing that we've become aware of in recent years is uh, the frequency of behavioural side effects and the use of Singulair. And if you wish to use Singulair, then it's important to alert the family to the fact that they can develop behavioural side effects. They're not permanent and they disappear once you stop the drug, but they need to be aware of that. Um, it's other, uh, two other roles for Singulair. Um, it's quite good at uh, preventing exercise-induced asthma, and unlike salmeterol, uh, it doesn't it develop, you don't develop tachyphylaxis to uh, that. So sometimes we use it as an add-on for those with exercise-induced asthma to limit high-dose inhaled steroids. And then um, we did a study years ago looking at the intermittent use of Singulair for those with viral-associated wheezing and that its introduction at the onset of a cold uh, can modify the acute episode of viral-associated wheezing in some children. In many children it doesn't work, but it's not a bad um, drug to try um, and certainly will reduce the need for uh, steroids in such situations. Yeah. So if we send uh, a child to a respiratory physician, are there any other tricks you have up your sleeve? <laughs> um, look, 
I don't have any major tricks. I think it's uh, really listening to the family. Uh, um, when I see someone who comes to you with a letter that says, Dear Doc, could you please see Harry with asthma that's not responded to standard therapy? The first thing I do is try and confirm that the child actually has asthma. And um, the most important part of that is they've demonstrated a response to bronchodilators for those episodes. The rest uh, is ensuring that the history is compatible with asthma and look for red flags that might make you think it's something other than that. As we mentioned before, it's post-infective cough or protractor bronchitis. Kids with um, uh, neurological abnormalities uh, where they may have uh, aspiration as a common risk uh, are often warning signs. Um, and really listening to what the parents have to say about their child's symptoms and trying to put it together and and see if it doesn't really fit the diagnosis. Then we go through the other things like um, uh, medication delivery, appropriateness of medication, things that the kids would like and their adherence, etc. Yeah. So I know in some ways not a lot has changed in the management of asthma over a number of years. What does the future hold for the treatment of asthma and mm. what might be different? Um, it would be really nice to see if there was something other than steroids that could influence the uh, inflammatory process associated with steroids. As we've seen over many years, there have been um, drugs that block selective components of the inflammatory process with limited success. More recently, there are drugs that uh, will mop up IgE or uh, reduce the effectiveness, reduce production of eosinophils. I think they have. Um, a modest benefit, but should be, they'd be limited to a very small group of patients, extremely small group of patients. Some studies have shown that the major risk factor for the use of such drugs is, patient, is poor patient adherence with standard therapy. Um, so I think you need to use all those. But that's where the likelihood future will be, is to find something that can block the inflammatory process without the side effects of steroids in an effective way. Uh, so Colin, a lot of people ask when they should be using inhaled corticosteroids in children with viral induced wheeze. What would you say to them? I think for children who have infrequent episodes of viral associated wheeze uh, that there is no need for inhaled corticosteroids. Uh, longitudinal studies on children with such asthma would suggest that there's no impairment on their long-term lung function as adults and the few uh, control tri trials that have used inhaled steroids uh, in children with preschool children with asthma with infrequent episodes have shown that while it might improve their control a little bit, it doesn't influence the natural history of the disease either in the frequency of symptoms once you stop or in their long-term lung function. So uh, in those children who have more frequent episodes, it's worth a trial of steroids, but it depends on the severity of the symptoms. And if the symptoms are relatively mild and not bothering the child, then I'm not sure that they should bother the parent. And uh, by frequent, just so we can be clear, when you talk about frequent episodes, what kind of frequency are we talking? Well, I guess if, you have, if you've got more than six or eight weeks between episodes, then uh, mostly children then might have, say, five episodes a year. It might last for five days, so that's 25 days of asthma. Conversely, it's 325 days of no asthma. And so I think um, I don't see the need to fill someone up with steroids for 325 days for no benefit.
Um, on the other hand, uh, those uh, children who have frequent episodes that occur through winter might benefit from inhaled steroids throughout the winter period. And if those episodes are more severe, say they're bringing them into hospital or having to stay in hospital? Uh, that's a different ballpark. Yeah. So if you've got more severe episodes with frequent hospital admissions, then clearly you, uh, it's worth a trial of inhaled steroids. If you have infrequent, that is, one episode a year, that's not an indication for inhaled steroids. Another important point to mention in that is if someone is on inhaled steroids on a low dose, that's keeping them well controlled in between episodes, an exacerbation of their asthma is not an indication to increase their interval asthma, thera interval asthma therapy. Absolutely. Thanks, Colin, for talking today. It's very useful to hear you talk about your management of children with asthma to, I guess, check my own management and the things that I could think about differently. What I'm taking away from this discussion is the importance of making sure we are talking about asthma when we're seeing asthma, getting the basics of our treatment right um, and understanding, I guess, when we're using therapies for what. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. Please view the description section below for more information on this topic. The Education Hub is a collaboration between the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne Department of Paediatrics and funded by the RCH Foundation.